Welcome to Hollywood Babble, Episode 7, the podcast for film lovers, movie buffs, cineasts, cinephiles, fanboys, film freaks, picture goers, movie junkies, film addicts, and popcorn munchers. This is part two of our episode covering the first flickers of film in America. In past episodes, we've met the French film founding fathers, the Lumières, as well as Britain's era of inventors and Eastern European cineasts. But one figure looms above them all, Thomas Edison. In part one, last episode, we debunked the myth that Edison was the sole inventor of film in America. We saw there were key creators who tackled the challenge of making motion pictures and arrived at solutions even before Edison did. Thomas Armat and Francis Jenkins, Edward Emmett and Woodville Latham were among them. And then there were the men in the trenches, the lab techs, innovators, and engineers like W.K.L. Dixon, William Heisey, Eugene Lost, and Enoch Rector. Today, we continue moving from those pioneering days to the first production companies that made the first movies, the exhibitors that attracted early audiences, and the brewing storm between various interests in the wild west of movie making. This is Hollywood Babble. I'm Jeremy, and this is the first Flickers of Film in America, Part 2. Thomas Edison financed the first film studio, The Black Mariah, a black box with a retractable roof on rails that was constructed to follow the sunlight in 1894. The Black Mariah was located in West Orange, New Jersey, and was an extension of his research and development facility. It was a literal laboratory to manufacture film. The men behind the camera were essentially engineers. They were not artists with personal visions of directing. They set the scene to test the equipment. An early competitor named the Lambda Company, formed by the Latham brothers Otway and Gray, with their father, Colonel Woodville, took more of a commercial approach. The Lathams wanted to make movies that attracted audiences, and they found that fight films, boxing pictures, brought in the crowds, men, women, and children. The Lathams also wanted to take these pictures out of the single-viewer kinetoscope and put them on a screen to create an exciting experience and audience involvement that was sure to bring in box office. Lambda had a vision, but the personalities were temperamental, and these partners could not stay together for long. Let's rack focus to Veriscope. The Veriscope Company was an offshoot of Lambda. The principals were Enoch Rector, formerly of Edison Labs, and Samuel Tilden, the well-connected son of a former New York governor. Rector and Tilden left the Lathams to form Veriscope. And we have a new character, Dan Stewart, an established boxing promoter. So Veriscope had aspirations for bigger, longer films, and after the success of the first boxing pictures, Corbett and Courtney before the kinetograph, remember the kinetoscope was a single viewer device, and Young Griffo versus Battling Charles Barnett, 
both 1895. This was the first film projected in America before a paying audience. And these two films showed Rector and Tilden the path to prosperity. From the beginning, Veriscope's goal was to produce an epic widescreen boxing film, and the results would be the Corbett-Fitzsimmons fight in 1897, which, at over 90 or 100 minutes long, would be the top contender for world's first feature-length film. Let's talk about the Veriscope device. It was a huge camera, just massive, essentially a darkroom that could shoot film. Operators sat sealed inside a light, tight wooden structure with red-tinted windows and three photographing machines inside. Because the Veriscope was a darkroom, Rector and his assistants could handle the film without it being exposed, moving it through the machines and manipulating it to make sure it didn't tear. Veriscope produced one single commercial film, The Corbett Fitzsimmons Fight. And the importance of this film and the behind-the-scenes drama was intense. We should recognize that this was an event film, like the release of a new Marvel movie. Around the nation, audiences anticipated the opening. Like no other film to date, Corbett Fitzsimmons supercharged movies in America on several fronts, each extremely important. Technical innovation cultural significance, economic impact, and content regulation. This single movie was so important and the backstory so intense that we'll devote the better part of an episode to it when we look at boxing films in the early film industry. That's episode 13. But in a nutshell, Rector and Veriscope wanted the biggest fight film and set their sights on James J. Gentleman Jim Corbett. Gentleman Jim was the heavyweight champ. His only challenger was middleweight Ruby Red Robert Lanky Bob Fitzsimmons. But Fitzsimmons had a problem. In 1894, Fitz met Con Reardon in the ring and struck a devastating blow. Reardon dropped like a sack of potatoes, and he never recovered. Died. A grand jury indicted Fitz in January 1895. The verdict? Not guilty. It was an excusable homicide, the tragic consequence of a trial of athletic skill. While Fitz was eager to fight Corbett, Corbett not so much. Also, due to boxing bans across America, it was hard to book a location. Dan Stewart was on this, but it was difficult. Florida and Louisiana prohibited prize fighting. Texas and Virginia also moved to prevent this fight. In Texas, the state legislature rammed through an anti-prize-fighting statute in October 1895. Dan Stewart finally secured a venue in Carson City, Nevada, and the date was set, March 17, 1897, St. Paddy's Day. Veriscope's Corbett-Fitzsimmons fight originally ran over 90 minutes long. It was the world's first feature film. It was the world's first pay-per-view. It was the world's first blockbuster. It was in an IMAX-like wide-gauge format. Thousands gathered at the New York premiere at the Academy of Music on May 22, 1897. And the profits were boffo, said to be north of $120,000. Sadly, only fragments of this film survive. The Library of Congress has a three-minute clip. 
three minutes remaining of that 90-minute feature film. And this is the end of the Veriscope story. They never produced another film. Rector left the film business, but he was set for life. He continued tinkering and inventing until his death 50 years later in 1957. At that time, he was working on an improved fuel injection system for cars. There's a lot more to say about Rector and Veriscope, but we'll revisit this corner of film history in our boxing episode, episode 13. Now, let's check back in at the Edison Manufacturing Company. Now, Thomas Edison was pretty well known to enforce and enhance his market position with aggressive litigation and nuisance lawsuits. And in this emerging world of motion pictures, there was a man for this job, William E. Gilmore. In April 1894, Gilmore was the GM of Edison Manufacturing Company, taking over for Alfred O. Tate. Tate will be back for a bit appearance in a second. We've met Gilmore before. His main role in our story so far is that he was cost-cutting and right-sizing various Edison divisions, and he became suspicious of W.K.L. Dixon. Dixon was still employed by Edison, but becoming increasingly frustrated by the wizard's credit stealing, and Dixon had secretly begun working with the Lathams on the side. Gilmore discovered this and shit-canned the inventor in 1895. Gilmore's action had consequences, the butterfly effect. By firing Dixon, Gilmore opened the door to competing motion picture machines, and this in turn led to numerous patent litigations that would drag on for decades. In the UK, Robert Paul built an unauthorized kinetoscope knockoff. Gilmore refused to supply Paul with Edison films, and this forced the Brit to go into production and release the first British films. In 1896, Gilmore was the key figure in negotiations with Thomas Armat and Raff and Gammon at the Cotton States Exposition. This is where Edison acquired Armat and Jenkins' Vitascope, the projecting machine. Of course, Edison rebranded it. Armat's, or was it Jenkins' invention? Yo, that's right, they were fighting over that, as the Edison Vitascope. Later on, Gilmore caught Albert Smith and J. Stuart Blackton. They'll become important in our story shortly. He caught them duping, that is copying, Edison's Spanish-American war films. Gilmore bullied their prodco, Vitagraph, among other early emerging prodcos, into becoming Edison licensees, that is, paying a fee, a subscription, to use Edison manufactured equipment for the privilege of producing their own content. This will take us to the Motion Picture Patents Company, or MPPC, but that's another story for another day, episode 12, actually. In 1908, Gilmore ankled from Edison, leaving the movie biz to manage a printing conglomerate. Gilmore was replaced by Frank Dyer. Now, you may remember that Edison licensed three companies to market the kinetoscope, the original Edison motion picture machine, that peephole viewing device. First, there was a kinetoscope exhibition company. We've covered that with the Lathams. Remember, that was Otway, Gray, Enoch, and Tilden. Next came the Continental Commerce Company. Principals here were Frank McGuire and Joseph Balkus. We met them in the British episode, episode four. 
Maguire and Baucus introduced the kinetoscope in London, but since Edison had not patented the machine in the UK, Robert Paul got his hands on a unit and reverse engineered it, and he kicked off the British film industry. The third official licensee was the Kinetoscope Company. No exhibition in this title. Kinetoscope Exhibition Company was the Lathams. It's confusing, I know, but just bear with me. This shingle, the Kinetoscope Company, was formed by a six-person board that included Norman Raff, Frank Gammon, Andrew Holland, and former Edison lawyer Alfred O. Tate. See, I told you he'd be back. Gilmore had filled his position at Edison. Well, this is where Tate went. So now let's dig in to the Kinetoscope Company. The Kinetoscope Company can be a little bit complicated because we have two distinct groups here, the Holland Brothers on one hand and Raff and Gammon on the other. Let's start with Andrew and George Holland. On April 14, 1894, the Holland Brothers opened their Kinetoscope Parlor at 1155 Broadway in New York City. That's Broadway in 27th. Uh, the Broadway Plaza Hotel is there now. They leased 10 machines from Edison and charged customers 25 cents per kinetoscope view. The Hollands are important because although their scenes were not projected, their parlor marked the debut of motion pictures as a commercial business. A month later, on May 17, 1894, the Holland brothers opened a second franchise in Chicago and then another in Boston. They hired a 22-year-old named James H. White to service these parlors. He'll come back in a minute. In July of 1894, the Hollands sold six kinetoscopes to Anastas Georgiadis and George John Trigetes. These enterprising Greek entrepreneurs left for Europe and became a source of headaches for Maguire and Balkis. We discussed this in our British episode, episode four. Next, Andrew Holland moved from the exhibition side, running kinetoscope parlors, to the distribution side, becoming one of the founding partners of the kinetoscope company with Raff and Gammon and selling the new machines. So now let's meet Norman Raff and Frank Gammon. During the kinetoscope boom of 1894-1895, Raff and Gammon produced several short subjects. Some were made at the Black Mariah. Some were shot on the rooftop studio above what would become Vitascope Company's office at 43 West 28th Street in New York City. Now these guys brought in Alfred Clark, a stage director, marking a departure from technical lab guys directing films to a more artistic sensibility. Clark made The Execution of Mary, Queen of Scots in 1895. This was very early for a narrative film. And what we have here is a costume drama with a plot and even a special effect. There's a stop-motion effect to create a lopping off of Mary's head. This was truly a holy shit moment for early audiences. Think for a second about how the first audiences received that horror show. If a train arriving at a station had folks diving for cover, which was probably a myth, how did they take a beheading? Clark went on to make some crowd-pleasers, like Lola Berry's Fan Dance, that's some sexy stuff, Joan of Arc, 
who doesn't love the Joan of Arc story, and the rescue of Captain John Smith by Pocahontas. Okay, so it's far too early to start seeing elements of authorship here or personal style. But looking at the works of Alfred Clark, especially compared to the other films being produced at the time, men boxing, blacksmith shops, etc., Clark is making what might be called women's films, films that had a wider appeal than just to a single male demo. This one, The Rescue of Captain John Smith by Pocahontas, could have been a four-quadrant film, appealing to men older and younger and women older and younger. I mean, again, it's way too premature for this kind of critical or commercial analysis, but Clark does give us an interesting situation. He was out of filmmaking by the end of the year, although he lived until 1950, So he saw where this would go. As a side note, what did Alfred Clark do for the next 55 years? Well, he moved to London to work in gramophone sales, and then by 1900 traded the world of new media for his lifelong passion for Chinese ceramics. He collected vases from the Tang Dynasty. Well, different strokes for different folks. The kinetoscope business slowed in 1895. Perhaps the novelty was wearing off? So in September 1895, Raff and Gammon sent a rep to Atlanta, Georgia to the Cotton States Exposition. And that's where they became aware of Armat and Jenkins' Fantascope. Armat gave Gammon a demo and impressed Raff and Gammon approached Edison and to breathe new life into the flagging motion picture biz, Edison agreed to acquire Armat's machine rebranding it as the Edison Vitascope, of course. And so Edison Manufacturing pivoted from making kinetoscopes to Edison Vitascopes from single viewer systems to a projector. Now on April 23, 1896, Raff and Gammon booked the Vitascope at Coster and Biles Music Hall on Broadway and 34th. That's where Macy's is located today. And things went well for a few months. But in 1897, the Raff and Gammon Vitascope Company was failing. Edison Manufacturing was not happy. Raff and Gammon had only brought in 73 Vitascope orders, and competitors were coming on the market, notably Biograph. Meanwhile, the Holland brothers licensed rights to sell the Vitascope in Canada. They debuted the Vitascope in Ottawa on July 21, 1896, and in Toronto in September 1896. But by 1897, the Hollands, like Raff and Gammon, had run their course. They sold off their rights and faded into cinema history. While the exhibitors were struggling, production was picking up at Edison Co., Do you remember James H. White? The Hollands had hired this kid to manage their kinetoscope parlors in Chicago and Boston. Well, James White comes back into the picture as a director for Edison. In Edison Drawn by World Artist in 1896, White rolled film on caricaturist J. Stuart Blackton in a lightning sketch of The Wizard of Menlo Park. Blackton will become important in episode nine. White's Fatima's Kuchikuchi dance was scandalous. It crossed the line and was censored. Fatima's swinging hips were just too much badonkadonk, and we'll have a lot more to say about censorship in episode 14. 
White also made a series of newsreels with President McKinley. He churned out hundreds, hundreds of films. And while he directed these shorts, he frequently worked with a cameraman, William Heisey. You might remember Heisey from those early days. He was working with WKL Dixon on the development of motion picture technology from the very beginning. Heisey had remained at Edison this whole time while Dixon and Laust and Rector headed over to Latham and Lambda. Speaking of WKL Dixon, let's check in with him. The beginnings of Biograph. When we left Lambda, the Latham Brothers biz, things were deteriorating. WKL Dixon was never quite welcome there, and he bailed in 1894 and fell in with three colleagues to create the KMCD group. Elias Koopman, Harry Marvin, Herman Kassler, and WKL Dixon. KMCD. KMCD would evolve into the backbone of the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, the most formidable rival to Edison's film interests. Koopman, Marvin, Kassler, and Dixon developed a flip card device called the Mutoscope, which would flip through a series of sequential photographs to give the illusion of movement. Kassler developed the machine, which was ready by Q3, 1894, and was intended to be a competitor to the Edison Kinetoscope. Kassler next worked on a camera, the Mutograph, and by June 1895 had a prototype successfully tested. Let me tell you a little story about mutoscopes and kinetoscopes. So when I was a kid growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, My mom used to buy me shoes at a little store on Broadway between 82nd and 83rd. It was called Indian Walk. So I was, what, six, seven, eight years old? Now, Indian Walk had this machine that you could stick a penny in and turn the crank, and a little light would flicker on, and you'd look through the viewfinder and see a little picture shows. Dancing girls, acrobats, funny boxers that sort of thing. So I'd be getting my loafers and I'd ask for a penny to go watch the little show. It was fun. So that was a mutoscope. Years later, I'm working on my book, Dirty Words and Filthy Pictures, Film of the First Amendment. It's available on Amazon.com, by the way. And I go to the Margaret Herrick Library in Beverly Hills to do some research. And I'm waiting for my documents at the reserve desk. And it's a beautiful room. First edition bound shooting scripts of films like Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Stagecoach, lined the locked shelves. And across the room, I see this wooden crate-like box. I mean, it's a kinetoscope. It's coffee table colored, about four feet high. There are a few nickels sitting on top. So I walk over. And all these film scholars are pouring over their primary sources. It's quiet. It's intense. And I pick up a nickel, and I drop it in the slot. And now this thing was loud. It springs to life. It sparks up, and it sounds like a machine gun going off. And the scholars look up, and I quickly bury my head and stick my eyes in the viewfinder. And what I see is this beautifully lit color version of the Annabelle Butterfly Dance, It's incredible. It's shimmering and luminescent. 
So that's the difference between a kinetoscope and a mutoscope. The mutoscope had a crank, and you turn it, and you basically see a flipbook of photos. And the kinetoscope, which was much bigger, bulkier, and louder, runs a strip of celluloid. Well, Koopman, Marvin, Kassler, and Dixon were working on the mutoscope, but projection was on the horizon. So Kassler went back to the drawing board to develop the biograph projector. This tech used wide-gauge 68-millimeter sprocket-less film. He tried to make this machine as different as he could from any of Edison's patents. He knew. So in December of 1895, KMCD reorged to become the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, shortened to Biograph. This shingle would become one of the major film producers in the next stage of film development, rivaling Edison Company. That is, until these mortal enemies would join forces and become frenemies to squeeze out competitors. Competitors being the early independents. So who were these guys at Biograph? The core team was Kassler and Marvin. Herman Kassler was an engineer, able to create high-quality, reliable tech based on concepts provided probably by Dixon. Harry Marvin had worked with Edison years earlier on the installation of the first electric light plant and later would become the president of Edison's Film Trust, the motion picture patents company. Elias Koopman, unlike his partners, had a commercial background rather than technical, having marketed magical toys and optical novelties for the Magic Introduction Company. One of his early successes was the Photoret pocket watch detective camera, which was invented by Kassler and Dixon. Koopman also brought to Biograph a promising employee named Billy Bitzer. More on him later. Now, while Bitzer would have a historic career as D.W. Griffith's cameraman and collaborator, Koopman was not a great fit, and he left Biograph by 1896. Koopman's story ends two months before the stock market crash. He committed suicide in August 1929 in a New York hotel room. So now, this is interesting. W.K.L. Dixon was not offered a senior management position at Biograph, and he ankled from the company. So the D from KMCD did not move to Biograph and instead headed out as a freelance cameraman. By 1899, Dixon was in South Africa covering the Boer War with his camera. We'll tell this story as well. Not exactly sure when we'll fit it in, but it's worthwhile. Dixon and the Biograph at War. That was the title of his book, by the way. So this ends our episode covering the first flickers of film in America. From Veriscope's widescreen epic-length fight film of the century to the opening of the kinetoscope parlors and mutoscope saloons and storefronts across America, we became a movie-loving nation early on. We saw the race to evolve pictures from single peep show amusements to an evening's entertainment projected on screens. And once films could be projected, the movies became a shared experience, a community, an influential cultural force. There was magic in the movies. Watching images unspool in a group was seeing stories written in light. 
Next episode, we'll spend some time with the cinema's first magician, Georges Méliès. You probably know him from A Trip to the Moon, the 1902 film where a bullet-shaped rocket lands in the man in the moon's eye. That's such a memorable image, but there's so much more. This is Hollywood Babble. Thanks for listening. Let's end the episode with a line from my favorite movie buff, my son Jackson. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you haven't heard nothing yet. Do you know the film? Visit us on Twitter at Hollywood Babble for the film title, and also tell us your thoughts, comments, suggestions, etc. Here it comes one more time. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you haven't heard nothing yet. For the right answer, Hollywood Babble on Twitter. This episode goes out to Dan, Butler, Liz, McNichol, and the music maestros at Paramount Pictures. Everyone else, I hope to see you next episode. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. The uh, dreams are made up. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Go ahead. Make my day. You talking to me? You talking to me?